Hello and welcome to another special Oscar Week edition of Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm on my own right now. I'm introducing the episode, but throughout the week we'll have a lot of conversations featuring all of us. And uh, starting out, we have our conversation with Ted Melfi. He is the co-writer and director of Hidden Figures, which is one of the biggest hits in the Oscar race. And he is nominated as the producer of the film as well as as the writer. He called us from an Amtrak on his way from another D.C. screening of the film. They actually screened the film in the White House, which he chose not to brag about uh, before the Obamas left. So they have some good history there. So we're being joined by Ted Melfi, who is the director of Hidden Figures, which I believe at this point might be the biggest box office hit of all of the Best Picture nominees. So, uh, Ted, it seems like a good time to be you. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So the trajectory of Hidden Figures this season is really interesting because you guys were kind of part of the fall festival season and kind of weren't. It was like a little bit of a late arrival for a while. I think we thought it might even be opening in January. Was that element of surprise kind of essential, do you think, to people embracing this movie? Like they weren't bludgeoned over the head with it in July saying it's going to be a Best Picture nominee. Like you could take us by surprise. Uh, it wasn't really a plan on our part. I mean, I just we just didn't have the movie ready. I mean, we started shooting in uh, in March. Wow. So so we wrapped in May 15th, so the odds of us being ready for December were very slim. And then the studio saw the film for the first time in early August and said, we have to have this for Christmas. And so they cut eight weeks out of our post schedule, and we we dug in and we, we delivered it. It wasn't really intentional. It wasn't. It, it just became that. It became it. It became that after they saw it, but it wasn't intentional. What was that screening like? Where the studio first saw it and fell in love with it? Were you sitting in the back room sweating? You're always sweating in those screenings. Uh, yeah, especially for the first time. But I remember sitting there, and Elizabeth Gable, the head of um, Fox 2000, and Marissa Piva were there, and of course Peter Chernin and Jenna Topping, the producers, and all of us. And the lights came up. Everyone was quiet. And Elizabeth Gable starts to talk about the film and talks for about 60 seconds and then all of a sudden bursts into spontaneous tears wow. and, starts cry- and starts crying for like, I'm not joking, for like 10 minutes and crying and crying and crying. And I'm like, are you okay? Are you okay? <laughs> She's like, it just, it just, it means so much. It's so, it's so beautiful. It's so important. And, and then that's when everyone knew that we should try to get it out for Christmas. But, but I will ne- I'll never forget that day because, you know, you know, someone starts talking and they just start trying to explain what they feel and this and that. And then all of a sudden they start to cry. And you're, it's, uh, at that point, it was, a, it was just, the whole thing's been a shock since then. Was there ever a moment for you, whether it was in filming or in post-production, where you kind of yourself realized that you had something there? I mean, do you feel that kind of magic as it's happening or is it only a kind of in retrospect kind of thing? You feel things here and there a, long, a little bit along the way. But, you know, shooting is such a um, such a uh, what's, what's the word, such a growing process. And you're shooting so disjointedly and so out of out of context and out of order that you really can't get a sense of how everything's going to fit together but you get it in spurts and i remember the the, the, the time i got it the most was when um karaji p Hedden comes in and yells at kevin costner about the segregated bathrooms and that was on the last day of filming and she was she wanted to be alone and, and just really you know dig into her character and just have some quiet time so we gave her some time and then she came in and did that monologue and we were all crying behind the monitors, going, "Oh my God, how I've, I just felt I, I felt so much for her in that moment." 
And the moment she was done with it, those 30-something white guys in the NASA control room, the, our background performers and our, and our actors, literally all burst into spontaneous applause. And it, it, was, it was one of those moments. It's just one of those moments that you go, oh, oh, this is, this is, has, this is going to mean something to someone. So you've just talked about how making this movie changed you and you, you feel like making a movie, I think you said, with four white guys in wigs is just isn't going to interest you anymore. But as a white guy making this movie, I mean, and, you know, aware of the story you're telling, what due diligence do you do to make sure that you're not just kind of putting your own perspective on this, but making the story about the women and, you know, telling their stories? Well, you know, it, it was it, that was the only intention from the beginning was to was, uh, oh, oh tell the, the women's stories and who, who they were. And I, I, I've always had issue or I always, I always take issue with, you know, it being a white director or a black director. It, it shouldn't matter. It, it, a human can tell any human story, period. Uh, that's my, that's my perspective on it. Uh, we, we did all we could to lift the women up. We did our research. We did our homework. We worked closely with Wim Thomas, our production designer, who is a, a black man. And, and Marvelous generally is a novelist, is a black woman. And, you know, and, and several interviews and lots of time spent with the real Catherine Johnson. Uh, so, no, you just you just do your work and you dig into the human heart of it. As Taraji says all the time, Taraji has says all the time, she goes, Ted doesn't need to tell us how to be black women. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, you know, that's not the job. The job is to tell people how to be human or help them find the humanity in something. And I think that crosses every race. You know, every every sex, every creed, every religion, it's universal. The themes in the movie are universal. I think that's why it's done so well. So when you're on the publicity circuit for this movie and, you know, you start in the fall and it really goes on for months, what is the bonus where you have Taraji B. Henson, Octavia Spencer, and Janelle Monet out there with you? Do you just get to sit back and, like, let them speak and you get to skip all the interviews except for this one? Yeah. Well, that's basically what I've, what I've kind of done, you know, because first of all, I, I'm not a big fan of, of talking about myself. I just, <laughs> I just I don't find myself that interesting and talking I find boring. But, you know, the women are so dynamic and the movie's about them. It's it's not like it's a hard job to, to sit back and let it happen because, you know, that's what that's what it should be. They're representing three amazing Basically, you know, modern superheroes, those the three women they play. And they are exactly those women in, in, in a lot of ways. A lot of ways, Taraji B. Henson, Octavia Spencer, and Janelle Monet are modern-day superheroes as well. They're super dynamic, and they love each other, and they're fearless. And they're fearless, fearless for their causes and fearless to promote the film. And So, you know, compared to them, I'm not that interesting. So. <laughs> So you had this amazing screening with, uh, you know, the executives in August or end of the summer. Um, and then at Toronto Film Festival, they showed, you know, I think uh, some selection of it, a clip from it or a series of clips. And you're, I assume you're, you're still working on the film at that point, finishing it up. Was there any point where, you know, when this kind of awards narrative, the film gets swept up in, was there a moment of realization of like, oh, wow, I think we could actually get a Best Picture nomination? Or it was that a complete surprise when it happened? Uh, I think it's always a complete surprise when anything like that happens. Uh, it, as I said earlier, we just want to make the best film and, and represent the women and do their story justice. And then everything else has kind of been like, oh, like literally like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, we're at $134 million today. And you go, how, you know, how do you, how do you sit back and try to take that in and absorb it? How, how do you make sense of any of that? I, I don't know. How do you make sense of an Academy Award nomination? I, I, I don't know. Maybe if you do it your whole life and you get 30 of them, you go, oh, I can make sense of it. But it's all a shock. It, it's a beautiful shock. It's a beautiful surprise because, you know, we feel like 
in a lot of ways, the film has succeeded already in our goals. And our goals were for it to change lives and help people and help little girls and help you know little boys think of something different for their lives. And that seems to be the resounding statement the film has made already. So to us, all these things that came after it, the award recognition, the set, you know, it was beautiful, what was really beautiful for us was a, and a really beautiful moment for the whole cast was our SAG award win yeah. for best on best ensemble because, you know, we really feel and we really felt like we were such a family and such a, a true group of actors doing, you know, selflessly working. There was no real lead per se. Uh, even though Taraji is the natural lead of the film, but it's a very um, balanced film. And so that was a really special moment for us because we felt like we worked together as a team, as a true ensemble. We've been saying on this podcast several times that this award season doesn't have to be about Trump. It feels like everything is about Trump these days, but it doesn't really have to be. But it does feel like some of the embrace of hidden figures has come from, you know, seeing people working in the government and seeing black women succeeding and kind of looking at this period of civil rights accomplishments. Do you see that on your end? Like, do you feel like this particular political era has really boosted the love for hidden figures? Uh, yeah, I think I think what's boosted it more is the divisiveness in the country. And, and I think that, you know, with that election, I mean, this past year for this country was was really rough. I mean, I've never, I'm only 46, but I've never seen an election like that in my life. That, I don't know that if anyone neg- has, so it's not yeah, just youth. But, yeah, but that much negativity, I mean, mm-hmm. I, on, on both sides, but, you know, especially on the, uh, on the Donald Trump side, that much negativity was just kind of shocking for people. And, and not just the negativity from Trump. I don't think Trump particularly... Um, was was I, I don't know what he was particularly doing. <laughs> no one really knows what he was particularly doing, but his supporters or his supporters on the far right or the alt right, that negativity I don't think we've seen since the civil rights right era, which I think is why the movie resonated or is resonating. And the bigger thing is I think the movie offers a great sense of hope, you know, because you look at it and you say, okay, we just elected a president that uh, over half the country didn't vote for, right? So. And you look back at these women, and the three women, Catherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Mary Jackson, did incredible work in the worst of times, in the Deep South, in the Jim Crow South, in the segregated era, in extreme sexism and extreme racism. These women helped put men in space, uh, you know, with their pencils in their minds. And so if they can do that, we can surely get through four years or whatever. Uh, and so I think it offered a lot of people hope that that, you know, even in the worst of times, great things can happen. The country can get together. Black and white, male and female can get together and put a man in space. We can pretty much do anything. So I think that's what really made it resonate. So as you uh, kind of gear up for Oscar night, is this going to be your first Oscars? It is. Yes. So uh, how are you preparing? Who are you wearing? Uh, Bloomingdale's. <laughs> man of the people. Yeah, Bloomingdale's. Uh, I went to Bloomingdale's a couple, maybe two months ago, and said, "All right, I'm going to get a, uh, a tuxedo. I'm going to finally buy one because my tux rental shop, Gary's Tux in Studio City, has gone out of business." Oh goodness! I used to get my tux there for you know two twenty nine with a free pair of socks, <laughs> but now, now that the Gary's is out of business, I was forced to go to, to Bloomingdale's and I bought a tux from Bloomingdale's. I I think it's Armani something, but it's still Bloomingdale's. But anyway, the socks are not free, so there's, there's a downside. <laughs> Over the course of the season, you know, when you're going to the nominees luncheon and all these different events, is there anyone either in the, the screenwriting category or like, you know, veterans of the award season who've been kind of talking you through it? Maybe Octavia Spencer? Octavia's been the best. Octavia knows the ins and outs of it, and she also knows how to stay calm with it, 
she's just such a lovely person and uh, everyone seems to love Octavia and, and, and the more time you spend with her the more you know why it's just she's just a giving spirit and you know I, I've gotten to meet a lot of the other nominees and I gotta say I kind of like them all. <laughs> you know, you know, you, you, you never know. You, you're like, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to like it. I think I love Barry, um, the director of Moonlight. I love that guy. He's such a great guy. I just spent a lot of time with Eric, the screenwriter of Arrival. What a great human being. Uh, the writers of... Oh, I hear, I hear the Amtrak announcement. Uh, the Amtrak. Oh, no, we're just past Baltimore. Uh uh, Kenny is fantastic and hilarious. Kenny, the director of Manchester by the Sea, and Damien and I spent some time talking together. The director of La La Land, great, great guy. So I mean, this is just, and, and of course, my partner Allison Schroeder uh, of Hidden Figures, the other co-writer. I don't know. It's a group of people who seem to be all be making work for the right reason, doing work for the right reasons. So it's been like we kind of all kind of support each other and, and get each other through all these Q and A's and things we're doing together. Well, and you also get to be on the circuit with Pharrell, who might be the coolest person nominated. It's a lot of competition, but when you show up at the nominees' luncheon in jeans, I, you know, you have a vibe about you. Yeah, I tried to wear jeans, and everyone said, don't. don't do <laughs> Only Pharrell can get away with it. Yeah, he's the best. I mean, he's like, the, he's like, a, he's like, a, he's been our guardian angel the whole way. He's like a, he's like an ultra producer. This is Wilmington, Delaware stuff, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, last night we had a, uh, we had a screening in D.C., another screening in D.C., hosted by uh, Senator Tim Kaine, Senator Mark Warner, and Congressman Scott from Virginia, and uh, a few others, uh, Pat Leahy, Senator Pat Leahy, and 400 people at the Congressional Screening Room at the Congressional Visitor Center, which is fantastic. Wow. So that's why I was in. That's, yeah, and it's like, and that's really what it's about. Is like, and uh, three or four Republicans. I don't have their names in front of me, but it's kind of crossing the aisle, and people are coming out to support the film and get kids to see it. So it was a great event last yeah. night. Good. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a righteousness to the movie that is really hard to argue with. So that's a bipartisan thing. Hopefully. Um, so as you head into the you know the Oscars coming up very soon. Is there anyone who's nominated that you haven't met yet that you're excited to maybe meet at the show? Oh, I would really, you know, I got to meet Meryl Streep at the SAG Awards. That was like unbelievable. I really want to, I really would love to shake Jeff Bridges' hand. I've never met Jeff. Really would love to meet him. I've met all the directors because I'm with them on the circuit. I've met all the writers. Yeah. So uh, I would just like to meet a, a few of the other actors I haven't met. Jeff Bridges being one of them. I, I've met, uh, who's, who's nominated for Best Actor? Oh, um, Casey Affleck, uh, Viggo Mortensen, Ryan Gosling, and uh, Andrew Garfield, and Denzel Washington. Yeah, so the only person I haven't, the only two people I haven't met are Denzel and Andrew Garfield. I'd love to meet them as well. I've met all the women too, so I really. Oh, them. okay. Well, you've yeah. met a lot already. That's that's pretty good. We Thanks. had um, Andrew on the podcast. He's very nice. And I think Denzel Washington might be the only person who can rival Pharrell for the coolest person who's nominated. So yeah, once you collect them both, the cool factor can just rub off on you. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, I think we can let you continue on your train ride and get to Philadelphia 30th Street and then on to New York. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations again. And we'll we'll be watching for you during the broadcast. Okay. Watch for my Bloomingdale's. <laughs> uh, good luck. Thanks a lot. Okay, guys. Thank you so much. So throughout this week, we're also going to be sharing our final predictions for every Oscar category. We have a post up on VanityFair.com that has all of our official consensus predictions, but here's our chance to kind of riff on them and make our own personal wild card choices. We're going to start with some of the smaller categories and some of the harder to predict ones and then move on to things like Best Picture by the end of the week. 
So we're going to start off now with some of the crafts, which in some cases we know nothing about. In some cases, we think we are experts and uh, they are kind of the make or break categories on your Oscar ballot. So we'll uh, do our best. Basically, just going off the order of the list at VanityFair.com. Uh, let's start with cinematography, which, as uh, we've discussed, has some really interesting names in there. I've talked my head off about Bradford Young, who did Arrival. But it feels like La La Land has an edge in this category, even though there's a lot of really beautiful films. Yeah, a lot of times when there's a movie like La La Land that is so beloved for not only its story and acting, but also its technicals, people just kind of vote down. They just check every box that, yeah. that it's in. I mean, that's not always true. I mean, you look at something like last year with Spotlight winning Best Picture, but it, for a while there, it looked like Mad Max was going to win because it was mm-hmm. winning every single technical category. Yeah. Um, but I think La La Land has both um, yeah. components to it. So yeah, I don't really see anyone beating it. Um, it would be wonderful to see Moonlight win. Moonlight is so beautiful. That one, we gave the cinematography prize to that for New York Film Critics Circle. And it's just, you know, all these movies are beautiful. Silence is beautiful. Lion is actually really a nice looking movie. Yeah. So, yeah. But I think La La Land is, this is one of the categories where people are just going to kind of associate it with the best picture. Yeah, it's interesting. It's the first, I think, nomination for Linus Sangren, who did La La Land. Um, But he previously did Joy. He did American Hustle. Mm. Um, But that's it. So a lot of times you get like these kind of, Roger Deakins, Mm -hmm, mm 4,000 nominee types, as in keeping with La La Land. This is a younger, you know. No, it's really cool that there's so many first timers in here. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it certainly stands out. The look of the film stands out. The photography, those big set pieces, the opening one and the, and the dream montage what do we call it the fever dream, dream. ballet the dream yeah. ballet well even the purple of that scene on the in, like Mulholland Drive where that's on the posters like that really specific color yes. like yeah. that alone is uh, pretty impressive well and I keep saying this but I'll say it one more time the way that they match <laughs> you know contemporary LA with the MGM vibe is very much to do with the look of the thing and mm-hmm. that's kind of like the half the point of the movie so I do think it makes sense do you think the like cinematographers guild threw a party that Chivo wasn't nominated this year because he won the last three years? And <laughs> three like, years finally, someone else gets gets a shot at. This. I know, but as we discussed, this would have been a great year for Roger Deakins to finally win something because he's uh, so many nominations without winning. But uh, yeah. yeah, so all of us think it's La La Land. I think so. No, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna stick with Moonlight. <laughs> Well, it could be a career award for Moonlight's James Laxton um, because he also did Yoga Hosers, you know, big big year for him. Everyone's favorite movie. Whoever's playing bingo and thought we'd say Yoga Hosers on this podcast, you just, uh, you (laughs) and that we would say it, you know, in late February 2017. (laughs) He also did Tusk. So apparently the late Kevin Smith oeuvre is his. Oh, boy. Okay, let's move on to film editing, which I think is the hardest one for laymen to understand. And I'm calling us laymen in this situation because film editing is basically what you're not seeing. And unless it's something really elaborate like Birdman or, um, you know, fancy fast cutting like a Michael Bay movie, it's really hard to notice. But action movies do have an edge in this category, which is where Hacksaw Ridge could come in. Or it could just go to La La Land because a lot of times the movie everyone likes best wins. Yeah, the conventional wisdom is like it's always a good sign if a movie wins editing that later in the evening it's going to win Best Picture because people just kind of connect those together it's not that's not always true but it is often true but yeah in this case this year i don't know i think you're right katie that this is somewhere where hacksaw ridge could come in because it it has more complicated shots than mm-hmm. um than la la land does in a weird way or more yeah. complicated sequences that that an editor would have to stitch together and yeah you know is it a way to like sort of honor hacksaw ridge without giving mel gibson an oscar right um, that's for directing. <laughs> What's actually interesting is in this decade, the editing hasn't gone to 
the Best Picture winner that often. And a, a previous Damien Chazelle film, Whiplash, won Best Film Editing yeah. in 2014, crazily enough. Mm, right, right. Well, um, also, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo in 2011. Yeah. So, well, yeah. there you go. So, yeah, you never uh, you never know where they're going to go with this. But I would probably put my money on La La Land, if nothing else, because uh, Tom Cross has already won in this category for another Damien Chazelle movie. Yeah. I just I just don't want people to check all those. Bo- like, that's just I know, so I know. boring. You know? But editing a musical number is not easy. I that's mean, despite, and that um, that freeway number in the yeah. very beginning, which is yes. supposedly one take, like that's a feat of editing. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. I, I, keep, I always think about the party scene where the camera, you know, this is more, maybe more of a cinematographer thing, but like moves around the party and then goes into the pool. Yeah, like, that's yep. There's editing that's there. I, I yeah, would assume, I you know, mm-hmm. so it's uh, and it looks pretty seamless. Yeah. But, like, would you rather the camera in the pool, the party of La La Land, or the camera in the ocean in Moonlight? It's, well, it's sure, but I, again, underwater. I feel like this is, like, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going back to cinematography. But, yeah, no, totally. I, I mean, again, I don't really understand editing but <laughs> because I've never done it. But I just kind of think La La Land has the feel of one of those movies. That it's just people are just going to give it all the technicals. I think you guys are probably right. I just am going to be the voice of dissent for one more week. I mean, it's... It, it is tough to separate out editing from just the general success of the movie. Totally. My, my understanding, I'm sure different directors work different ways, but I'm pretty sure in most cases the director shoots and has all the notes and everything and turns over all the footage mm-hmm. and notes of like, this is kind of what I want to happen. And, and obviously the screenplay and the editors spend like, probably a couple of months mm-hmm. putting together a, a first cut for the director to come yeah. and look at. Like yeah. they do the initial assembly of everything and a lot, a lot, a lot of the hard work of like choosing takes and, mm-hmm. you know, so, so if the film is great, it is kind of almost inherently yeah. very crucially the editor's work. Yeah. I mean, obviously all these movies we're going to say are, are pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. There's not really any, uh, any bombs in there. All right. So talking about makes things look good. We've got visual effects next where La La Land is not nominated. So there's one, one thing it won't dominate. It's fascinating that Kubo and the Two Strings, which is a stop motion animated film is nominated here. That's really cool. But I feel like the Jungle Book has a really big edge here. That movie is a fine movie, but it is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I have not seen the Jungle Book. Interesting. Yeah, so the fact that I've seen the Jungle Book and you haven't is kind of crazy. I, I, I believe I was uh, at Cannes when it, <laughs> when it was out. Yeah, so I'll, I'll I'll take your word for that. But what I've seen of it looks beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just these incredibly photoreal animals that um, are is a really big accomplishment. I imagine they invented a lot of technology to make that possible. What do you think, Joanna? You wrote about the visual effects of Doctor Strange, didn't you? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would give it to the, to the Jungle Book handily, but it is interesting to see three Disney films in this category, Doctor Strange, the Jungle Book and Rogue One. Mm -hmm. And uh, unlike last year where I was sort of rooting for the Force Awakens to take a lot of like the below the line uh, awards, I, I would certainly not give it to Rogue One, which I felt was very choppy visual effects wise. But yeah, I would say the Jungle Book for sure, especially especially when you see like the behind the scenes shooting where it's just that kid mm-hmm. and like some sock covered tennis balls, you know, and it's like to realize how much they created not just the animals, but also sort of the vistas, you know, the question I think more people had was like, can we really even call this live action when it's like 95% animated? Yeah, I think that people were really enamored of that story, like, you know, that, that and it was all shot in downtown LA, you know, I just you just heard a lot about that. And I think it distinguishes itself from the others in that 
Well, well, Kubo too, but you know, Deepwater Horizon, Doctor Strange, Rogue One, it's all explosions and blah, blah, blah. We've, mm-hmm. we've done that. And Jungle Book and Kubo are, are not. So I think that that could differentiate it from the rest. Yeah. Also, while we're talking about all of these, uh, Julie Miller has done a ton of interviews with the people who made a lot of these uh, below-the-line decisions that are nominated, including for in our next category, production design. She just, uh, as we're recording this, ran a piece with the production designer of Hail Caesar, which, uh, Richard, I think mm. you talked about rewatching recently. Yeah, it's so good. Thinking is amazing. But it is the only nomination for Hail Caesar. Uh, again, this feels like a place where La La Land could uh, easily clean up. I mean, they rebuilt the Griffith Observatory for that sequence where they float up in the air, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, the production design is pretty good. I might give it to, this is a weird one, (laughs) I might give it to Fantastic Beasts. I don't know, like creating a Harry Potter world in New York out of, you know, New York. That that film was, I thought, a visual delight. I don't know if it's too CG or or what, um, how much we sort of look for the concrete, you know, things, but yeah. I thought Arrival was pretty cool looking. Yeah. And, um, In a simpler way. Yeah, I mean, the design yeah. of that spaceship alone is really yes. like, cool. I feel like that's going to yeah. be copied a lot with that, like yeah. really yeah. simple, clean. And they came avoid. up with something new with that whole hieroglyphics, squid ink hieroglyphics yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which probably will get copied elsewhere. I mean, it's worth saying that CGI in this category has done pretty well. Uh, Avatar won, uh, Alice in Wonderland won in 2010, which is crazy to me because that movie does not look good um so yeah i mean joanna to your point fantastic beast having cgi it does not necessarily make it disqualified but i still think la la land's gonna win i think so too i think yeah. we can safely say passengers is not gonna win right well it did get two nominations it did yeah wait if we're talking about swimming pools you know there's hey. the zero gravity <laughs> swimming true. pool i imagine that that's what cool. their nomination was for right because that's like the big visually stunning part. Um, yeah. but and i don't know kind i think of the shooting in a mall they made that yeah. mall look pretty nice just <laughs> <Yeah>. kidding <laughs> Between, you know, there are two Hollywood movies, like Hail Caesar and La La Land, like showbiz L.A. movies. Yeah. Um, I think that La La Land has the edge, but I actually could see Hail Caesar winning. That'd be so fun. Yeah. The fact that, I mean, we'll talk about song, but the fact that it's not nominated for song is going to break my heart forever. I know. So we talked about how film editing is a category that Philistines like us have a hard time with, but sound mixing and sound editing, which are two different categories, are the ones that really baffle people, including us. So every year we kind of reteach ourselves. Uh, and basically the rule of thumb we're going to use is sound editing is uh, creating sounds or finding sounds, which can be everything from sound effects like R2-D2 to, you know, things in a Foley laboratory or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different ways to do that. And then sound mixing is how they all get balanced together, which is the kind of thing that's really essential in a musical like La La Land, where you're mixing the soundtrack and the voice track and um, right. the score and everything like that. So uh, we'll start with the sound editing category, which is Arrival, Deepwater Horizon, Hacksaw Ridge, La La Land, and Sully. So I think a lot of these, you know, D- Deepwater Horizon, Hacksaw Ridge, um, explosions, metal clanking, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Sully being, you know, bings and boops from the plane, the sound of geese hitting engines, you know, <laughs> that's all that kind of stuff, right? Like, how, that's, how loud uh, are the geese and Sully? Oh, they're really loud. <laughs> <laughs> oh you know, but that, like, but it's all that practice. But, yes. but, but, but yeah. how loud they are is mixing, T. We're focusing <laughs> on editing right now. Yeah. This is just the quality of Sully. the sound. <laughs> Arrival would be like the the sound that the weird inky thing well, makes, right? And that's right. what's cool, yeah. you know, for something like Arrival in this category, is Arrival is full of sounds that don't have sounds like they're just totally invented like yeah. that inky thing which i think would make me want to vote for it over something like la la land which is you know you're getting like really fascinating sounds for a lot of this stuff for right? the musical but you know arrival is something totally and, new and the way that the aliens sound the kind of clicky kind of guttural mm-hmm. like thing i mean that, that's we've heard a little bit of that before from like the lost smoke monster or whatever but like it's still a really cool yeah. effective sound totally right yeah this might be a fun place to re- reward arrival and i don't think we've really stumped for it well, production design, some other categories, but like it would be nice for 
for Rival, which made a decent amount of money and was a very well-received film, to walk away with at least something, you know. Once again, just don't take the box for La La Land. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think Hacksaw Ridge is going to win. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, of all the, the war, war stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's just picture what that really sounded like. A bunch of guys being like, "No, go turn left." Hey, what the hell? And then it actually it sounds like this incredible. Well, they crazy... invented all like bone crunching and stuff. Right? Like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. That's that would. Uh, well, that I mean, seems by that be... argument, hacksaw could win in sound mixing too. Because well, that was, that was going to be my argument yeah. for hacksaw there because yeah. you've got so many different layers of things on it um, on yeah. a battlefield. But then again, in, in uh, La La Land, you have you know mixing a vocal track with a score and all and the sound effects yeah. and tap dancing and all those things like those yeah. are tricky. And they sang, they sang live, right? Yeah, I believe yeah. So. so. Which was like, you know, the whole campaign for Les Mis a couple years right. ago. Right, which I guess is why maybe La La Land is in for sound editing, too. Yeah. The other argument for Hacksaw Ridge and sound mixing is, you know, my personal fascination. Kevin O'Connell is nominated for sound mixing for Hacksaw Ridge. He has been nominated for an Oscar 21 times and has never won. All right, well, let's say Kevin. <laughs> I think th- let's say this is Kevin's year then. Okay. Let's say it's not, and he's just cursed. I think he's, he's cursed. The Susan Lucci of the Poor Oscars. Kevin. Yeah. Do you think La La Land's going to win this one? I think La La Land will win mixing. Yeah, okay. I think La La Land wins both, to be honest, because the Academy is full of a lot of people who are in the film industry, but also, like us, don't understand this stuff, and it's an easy way to uh, just, you know, straight ticket. That movie has sounds. Yeah. Melifflo sounds. I heard a tap dancing in there somewhere. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back tomorrow with yet another one. And in the meantime, you can find us at vanityfair.com and all on Twitter at LittleGoldMen, where, again, we've loved hearing from you and we want you to keep chiming in. And hopefully by now you know where to find all the rest of us on Twitter, so I won't say it again just by myself. This episode was edited and produced by Alana Milner, and thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Powers at Panoply. <laughs>